Blog Talk Radio. to the show. This is your host, Bernice Bennett, and joining me today is Nichelle Smith. And she will be discussing Finding Angela, Finding Self. Nichelle Smith is the coordinating editor for USA Today's investigations team and leader of several award-winning race and diversity projects for Gannett and USA Today, including Civil Rights in America, Changing Face of America, the 1968 Project, and most recently, 1619. She is also the editor of USA Today's annual Black History Month Special Edition, which was nominated for a Salute to Excellence in 2017 from the National Association of Black Journalists and won awards for writers in 2018. So let me just give a warm welcome to Nichelle Smith. Welcome, Nichelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So let's say, let's start with who is Angela? And why now is a great time to reflect on her impossible journey to Jamestown and her survival? Well, Angela is a person that I came across in pursuit of, of just learning about 1619 generally. What we do at the annual Black History Editions is after we close one in February and have that on the newsstands, I'm almost immediately beginning to gather information for the next one since we plan so far in advance what we're going to have for for the next year. So in, in 2018, I looked at 1619 because I knew that that was a historical touch point for a lot of people, and I needed to make sure that I had some sources lined up, some information lined up, and I, I was seeing a lot of things on the Internet that talked about 1619 as the 400th anniversary of slavery, and, and they talked about Jamestown. These were sources that weren't necessarily official. So I wanted to start talking to historians and to other people um, in Hampton and in Jamestown to, to get a jump on things and get an idea of what the story needed to be that we were going to talk about in 2019. So among the various um, characters, if you will, people historically that jumped out, 
um, at me. There was a 20 and odd, those who were the first Africans to, to, to arrive on the ship called the White Lion. But there was also Angela, who arrived a few days later on a separate, a separate ship. And she fascinated me because I had just not heard of her ever before this point. You know, we've got historical reference points to 1619 in Jamestown and the beginning of colonial government that led to the USA, but I'd heard nothing, next to nothing about the first Africans and nothing at all about Angela. So she began to fascinate me because here we have have a woman who survived um, not only capture in Angola, and um, getting to through the Middle Passage, and but also the pirating of that slave ship, and then she's brought to Jamestown, where in 1625 she is the first recorded African woman named in the, in the colony's muster, it, it's, which is basically its census. So she was named among the three other servants in Captain Pierce's household as if she was an equal and as if she was significant to the household. So they began to wonder a lot about her journey in particular and just sort of what it was like for an enslaved woman at that time moving through Jamestown in this atmosphere. And I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll report the story from the perspective of just going down to Jamestown and walking around, um, period dress maybe, and and talking to some people. Um, She was the subject of a three-year archaeological dig in Jamestown. So I thought I'd talk to to historians and archaeologists and walk around and kind of get a character sketch going. Um, But for me, it turned out to be a lot more complicated than that. It wasn't just as simple as um, going and getting some sort of overview of her life. I found that I needed to immerse myself in her life. And so how did you do that? Well, the immersion came, it came, um, it was in a way faded a little bit, um, about as much as her arrival um, could, could seem to be, to be faded. When we reported a story on 1619 for our February Black History Edition for Black History Month, just to talk about what it was that people were going to be, be celebrating or, or rather commemorating in August of 1619. Uh, people really liked the, liked the story. I, I'm still thanking E.R. Ship for writing it, it for us um, because she really laid the groundwork of here's 1619, what it is, what it isn't in terms of is it slavery, is it not slavery, who the main characters were. And our editor was so interested in that. Um, and many people around the room were interested in that, um, that that we all kind of got together and thought, well, we could have a 1619 project for the year, something that would be a lot more substantial than just one or two stories, and really talk about some of the people in place. So the idea began with, let's talk about the Tucker family. Um, a lot of people don't know, even even despite our coverage and coverage by other media outlets last year, a lot of people don't really focus on the Tucker family of Hampton, Virginia, as being a founding family in every sense of the word, just as much as um, some of the white founding families that we would would think about, because they descend from the first Africans, those first 20 and odd. Um, They believe they descend from William Tucker specifically, and he was the first recorded African child born to, in the Virginia colony and born to Isabel and Anthony, who came from that very first ship. So we started with the idea of, of following this, that family, not only 
how the descendants of William Tucker had been able to grow and prosper uh, from from um, 1619, but also let's take it back. And the more we thought about it, it became let's take it back and let's take the family historian, Wanda Tucker, all the way back to Angola, all the way back to the kingdom that the family believes that they emerged from. It's called the Indongo Kingdom in the interior of Angola. Let's go back as far as we can to those villages, to the slave fort, um, to the harbor in Luanda and really get a sense of what it was like for her ancestors to travel all that way, then through the Middle Passage and end up in Virginia and kind of capture her impressions along the way. Yes. And mm-hmm. in doing so, in, in putting the trip together and, and being able to go with, with four of my colleagues, it also offered, also offered an opportunity to look at her life because everything that Wanda was experiencing in terms of learning about her ancestors, Angela would have been in that first group of enslaved people as well. So I was able to um, walk through the villages, um, Mafume in particular, and get a sense of what it would be like for a young woman to move in that atmosphere, um, to be very highly skilled in terms of domestic work, raising animals and raising crops, Knowing how to go to the market and, and sell, knowing how to how to talk with the Portuguese and and with other other tribal people because that was a part of life. Dealing with the Portuguese was part of life. And then the shock and horror of being captured in her kingdom um, in chains, marched to the slave fort Masangano, um, where she would have been among people who were were first condemned by the Portuguese Portuguese government in a courthouse, marched up a hill to a slave garden where they were branded and sold and had their names taken from them. They were given new Christian names and then sent down the hill to wait for transport from the slave fort to Luanda where they would, would eventually embark on the slave ships. So just kind of walking her path and Seeing her agony helped me tell a more rounded story and helped me really get the essence of who she was. So how did that feel? I mean, emotionally, how was it for you to experience, uh, re-experience that journey that Angela went through? Um, there, well, there was, so, there was so much that, that came from that. Um, so much that was emotional, and and I'm also walking along with Wanda Tucker and my colleagues at the same point. So we were we were on a ten ten day journey. We really could easily have taken another week to be there just to absorb fully all the information that that we were getting. So to say it was highly stressful is an, is an understatement um, because on on an official level on a a business level, we were dealing with um, passport delays. At one point, they were the passports were confiscated. Um, then we couldn't get our press credentials um, as quick, quickly as we had hoped, and the only way we really got them was going to the embassy and working with, with some people there to immediately get some things done that we had been held up on. So there were all sorts of, of bumps and delays and things that, that didn't quite go according to to plan, and so we're dealing with that. We we were happy to get one interview, one couple of key interviews, um, with with a priest and also with the director of the slavery museum 
in Rwanda. Um, so, so we were in an atmosphere just just high intensity, high stress, very very little sleep to begin with, and then we were all experiencing our own story to a certain extent. Um, the lead reporter Deborah Barfield Berry and and the videographer Jared Henderson had both been to Ghana and to to other countries in Africa. So they, they sort of had an, an idea what to expect and how to comport themselves. I had not been to Africa at all. And uh, Wanda Tucker had, had been to Cameroon and other countries. She had not been to Angola at all. So we were we were simultaneously seeing everything brand new through her eyes and trying to make sure that, that she was able to see and do and gather everything that, that she hoped to be, be to gather there and experiencing her emotions, but at the same time, we're, we're ex- dealing with experiencing our own, trying to stay separate from the story, but at the same time being in the story, because as African Americans, as descendants of enslaved people, there's no way you can go there and not really be emotional and be in the story. So when we were out in the villages just sort of tracing the pathway, I'm trying to be very clinical about it, and look at, you know, this is how the soil would have looked. This is how the sky would have looked. This is this is how the baobab trees would, would have looked. And trying to keep to that detail, I think that the point at which I became emotional, there were, there were two points, actually, where I became emotional about Angela's story. First was being in the village of Mafume, um, where they had, had gathered to do a marimba presentation for us, um, having some people play the marimbas and, and the village people dancing at night as they have done for 400 years and, and probably thousands, a thousand years or so before that, just what the tradition was. And, and we were, were dancing in the village and, and enjoying ourselves and just really soaking up culture and I looked into the crowd as everyone was dancing. There were gatherings of children and women with children, young, young and old, bringing everybody to the presentation. Uh, the men were playing and were basically sort of overseeing the event, so to speak, while the women and children mm-hmm. um, were, were dancing um, in the middle. And I looked up and I saw a young woman. And I went to our videographer. The only lights on, by the way, this night, and the only lights on really are are the, the videographer's camera. I think someone had some headlights on from from a distance, just so we could have a little light to see by. And then, if you had a cell phone, which of course most villagers did not have have phones or anything. So, so I looked up, and there was a young woman whose face was she was young, but her face was was sort of wise. And it was the sort of thing where you couldn't really tell how old she was, but she knew that her body was young. And I sort of envisioned her as someone who would have sort of embodied what what Angela was. This was Angela maybe as we were dancing. Mm -hmm. Maybe this was the night before everyone was was gathered up. And I said to the videographer, there's Angela. And and he said, well, go gesture to her so, so we can take her picture. And took her picture. She came onto the bus later to, to, to just tell us goodbye and um, um, let let us know that she knew why we were there. And it sort of gave me a chill because it was as if Angela was there and sort of guiding us to where we needed to be. 
um, a second moment came when we were we were going to the slave fort in Masangana, which was a really important place to get to because there is where you saw up close all of the agony that people would have gone through. Um, they after they were captured, they were brought to this force for for, for all the processing. And getting there was just bumpy and, and going up and down um, roads that were unpaved on, on this bus. And then we finally get there. There were, there were seven of us in the bus because we had the translator and, and fixer and the driver with us as well. And then we got, got to the village, to the, the city right before, and, and heard that only a few of us could go. So it, it was just an agony of choosing who was going to go and then, then how we were going to get up there through pickup trucks. And literally the fixer and the videographer had to hang on to the back of the pickup truck standing up for an hour um, so we could get up the inaccessible road to get to this, this fort. Um, so after, after all the agony and stress of that, we finally get to this particular uh, position, this slave fort. It's by the Kwanzaa River. And it's at the confluence of the Kwanzaa River and the Lucala River. So it's an absolutely beautiful, natural natural spot that we're at, sort of higher ground. And as you go to the slave fort, which is about in the same condition it was in 1575 when they built it, it's been very much untouched um, over the years. There may have been some paving um, throughout the years just to make sure it still stood as a structure. But we're looking at villages that are basically the same sort of villages that would have been there in 1619 and people who would have been of the same um, sort of people, the same people from the Ndongo Kingdom who would have been there in 1619. And the slave fort um, is as it was. The slave garden, there is still a pathway um, that one can go up to, to the slave garden, this really high point. And you can trace the path. You could walk up there and think about um, Angela in chains being walked, pulled up this up this hill along with um, Isabel and Anthony, Wanda's ancestors. So she and I walked up this hill and just kind of stood there and looked out to see what they would have seen as really their last sight of their homeland before they were transported down the river. And to say that it was eerie and overcome, there were there were many times when there were, were sort of uh, a feeling of oppression because, or, or I, I would say just kind of pressing around me where you could feel and imagine that the ancestors were there and they were watching and you could feel um, them pressing in. Um, and then just a sense of, you know, there's still a vibe in the, and it hangs in the air of all the agony they would have gone through. Um, so we're walking and we're very solemn at that point. And, and at one point Wanda says, I, I don't know that I can walk this whole pathway every single step that they did because I'm going to break down. And do you mind if we don't do that? And I said, that's okay. And, and I understood because the feeling in the air was just so over overwhelming, and then you hear people in the villages singing. They were having some sort of school program. You could hear the village children singing, and there were a few, a couple of children that, that followed us, in fact, up and down, and then it hits you that the enslavement of Angela 
and Isabel and Anthony and the other 20 and odd and all of the 50,000 or so Ndongo people taken from that area in a three-year period, all of it happened within sight of other Ndongo people who were powerless to do anything to stop it and, in fact, probably had to assist it lest they be taken and enslaved themselves. So that just became very heavy to deal with. Yes, and it's just listening to you describe that feeling, I can imagine that you would feel they were kind of walking walking with you as you were walking up to say yes this is this is how we got there and how did this journey inspire you to find your ancestors well one interesting thing about this trip i mean we were we were taking Wanda and, and Wanda was excited to excited and and um, emotional and you know all that bundle of contradictory feelings that that you could feel, you can imagine on a journey like this, because she was going to where she was sure these were her people. The family, mm-hmm. the family, Tucker family can only really trace back to, to 1810, and then they have the family lore of William Tucker. It's possible that his grave is at the family grave site in, in Hampton, but they haven't yet located it, so they haven't yet been able to truly seal that gap between 1619 and 1810 in America. However, because they have that family story, that oral tradition handed down, that they do descend from William Tucker, therefore the family believes they are, in fact, Angolan. So they were going, Wanda was going to go back in, in the idea that until anybody comes up with evidence against it, um, we are Angolan and these are, are her people. So she was uh-huh. she was excited, happy, and when we got to the villages and they said, you know, welcome. You know, we didn't forget about those who were taken. Um, we knew that they had gone to Kalunga, which which for them means death, um, over the sea in, to death. And we mourned um, the loss of, of the people. So welcome back. You know, you are a daughter. You're at home. And everywhere she went, she got that reaction. So it was, it was wonderful watching that. And then my coworkers, um, Deborah and Jared, who had been to countries in Africa and had, and I believe Jared had traced his his ancestry before that time. Deborah was inspired to trace hers, and her ancestry came up. Um, Cameroon, Congo, through I, I believe it was an Ancestry.com test that that she took. So, so she felt ancestry in that area. And and frankly, we got there, and, and the way they were dancing in the villages, we joked with with them and said, you know, you you guys are, you know, acting like you belong here. You know, this these are your people. So, <laughs> so there were some connections. Yeah, they, they were. It was it was great. Mm-hmm. I, I I have footage of this that yeah, I probably they probably will not allow me to ever show. <laughs> But there was a, there were connections within the group, and, and I'm there like, you know, this is my first time in Africa, and whether it was the stress of the journalism or or just the unfamiliarity of, of Africa in general, um, I, I did not feel as strong a connection to, to people. I did not get um, – some people, you know, remarked about going to Ghana and getting this big sense of, you know, welcome, welcome home from people. And because we were reporting, we didn't really get that. You know, we were doing good to get our credentials at, at one point. 
Um, mm-hmm. So so I didn't get the welcome home feeling. I told, told Wanda at one point when we were on the plane, she says, well, what do you want to get out of this um, personally? And I said, I want to see if I can see my face in the faces of people around me in, in Africa, you know, to see if this is actually home, so to speak. And I did not get as much of that feeling in Angola either. So I had already had a trip planned to Nigeria for the Aki Festival. It's an arts and book festival that's done in Nigeria. It was going to be their first year in Lagos. And I got an invitation to, to go to that. So I, two months later, after our reporting trip and after everything's over, I end up in Nigeria and from the minute I get off the plane to the minute I get back on the plane, everybody I saw looked like me or looked like people that I knew, acted like people that I knew. <laughs> and, and, and all, yes, and although nobody, nobody said, welcome home, sister, exactly, I'm like, oh, I'm right at home here. You know, down mm-hmm. down to the personalities that I'm meeting that reminded me of people I went to and went to school with, you know, in in high school. So so it was just, a, uh, it was still a very different experience. But I was primed for it because I had been through Angola, which was much harder, and um and and then just seeing people and, and having people react to me. There was one point where we got up to leave. Those of us who were Westerners, and and there were were about ten or, or twelve of us, maybe if that, and we got up to to leave, and someone next to me just gasped. She was she was was like like you're not from here. I thought you were from Edo State, and so it was little interactions like that that made me just excited, and I felt you know there there is where I felt connection, and I'm like well well maybe I'll look into this. Um, so we, we had done a lot of work with African ancestry on the stories that we were doing. And so they also did DNA tests for, for me and my brother. And we found out, uh, my brother found out that our father's line is Belanta from Guinea-Bissau. And we were all kind of stunned because, because we, if there was any place in Africa that we were just going to point to and begin to speculate, you know, none of us in the family would have thought getting to sell. We just maybe the Senegal, you know, maybe Nigeria, not been getting to sell. So that's like a whole new area and a whole new group of people that we've never heard of that we now must investigate. And I was especially happy to find out about my mother's line. Um, she her line is Tikar and Hausa in Cameroon. So I'm like that explains it because we know that that the borders are were drawn arbitrarily, and Tikar and Hausa people were probably on both sides of what's now the the country border between Nigeria and Cameroon. So things began to make sense, and even now I'm I'm still after a few months of sitting with this and discussing it with the family. I'm excited for what I can find out about all of these groups of people and what their journeys were, how so many people ended up in in what would become the United States um, through the slave trade. I had some mixed feelings about it when I was in Nigeria because to the extent that I felt welcome and was sort of felt as if I was finding at last that ancestral home, um, I was having some emotional conflicts with the idea that 
Nigerians in particular, even more than, than Angolans, were complicit in the slave trade. And there were some families who made their generational wealth from the slave trade. Um, just because of the differences in how they perceived slavery in African countries versus um, what was to ultimately happen to us when we became a part of the American chattel, chattel slavery um, component of things. Um, so I had, I had a little bit of a moment of difficulty dealing with the idea of black people selling other black people. And it took me a little while to come around to a fuller understanding of how different things were then and now and and to a forgiveness of the whole thing. Sure. So if you uh, would want to advise anyone that considered trying to find themselves and if they were of African descent, would you recommend that they also take a similar journey to uh, a place in Africa, go to the continent, and then see if they can look around as you did to see faces that mirrored your own or that you would have that that emotional feeling and attachment to the people and say, yes, this is this is home for me, this is my homeland? I I would say begin a trip with with no with no expectation. Mm-hmm. I think that that part of the reason I was able to gather so much just soak up so much about Africa is about Angola in particular, is that I went without an expectation. You know, it it was for me the reporting trip. So if anyone approached it in that manner, like like let's go and see and and investigate and see what we can find out, um, then I think that they'll have a fuller trip. Um, certainly, there there are other ways to do it. Um, we worked with a with a fixer, you know, a specific um, journalism group set up to get you to specific um, places that you needed to be for particular reasons. Um, I, I definitely would not suggest that. Go with, a, with an actual tour group. <laughs> we'll give you a less, a less harrowing journey than, than we had to. But just, just keep an open mind to it and mm-hmm. find what you're going to find. And I wouldn't necessarily be driven to identify a particular country or particular place. Um, Ghana is a popular place, and certainly in terms of tourism and being able to bring people over, they definitely have a, a plan that other African countries admire. Uh, my, my Angolan contacts and def- definitely look at what they've been able to do for ideas on what they want to do going, going forward um, now that 1619 has given them so much um, attention on, to, on the country. Um, then you have places like Nigeria that people go back and forth to all the time. I might even suggest going to one of the, quote, easy places like Ghana and, and Nigeria that are set up for for tourists and set up for lots of people from the, the West and then maybe easing into going to a country like Angola that is still very much um, emerging from a dictatorship, 40-year dictatorship in a 25-year civil war that really tore a lot of the infrastructure up in the country. I would that would be a little bit more challenging trip. So I was I would say take take the easier way. Go to South Africa first, where they're set up to have people in, and just just soak up Africa first, and then go back and start poking into your history 
So if you need to go to a, a more challenging place like Guinea-Bissau, that looks like that's going to be very challenging given some of the um, civil wars and other things that have happened in, in that country. A lot There's a lot of unrest there. Um, I would save the more difficult challenge for a little bit later after you've eased in and begun to just appreciate Africa for because there is a a lovely part of it that no one talks about. We we were there for specific um, reasons of, of investigating history, but there are so many beautiful things to see there, and so many beautiful people. Uh, Luanda is it's it's very compact as opposed to Lagos, which is sprawling like a New York, and you begin to see that. Everything you've heard about African countries, everything you've seen, is not true. It's not the way that that it is. We get a lot of commercials from different charities that will show us the children with the babies with the flies in their eyes and other sorts of ailments. Those things are all there. We did see in the villages um, horrible health problems that we could easily solve in the United States or in other Western countries. And those things made us very sad. But there's also a beautiful and a vibrant part of African countries. Um, Luanda has, has has absolutely wonderful food, if you know where to go. And luckily our translator and our fixer knew all the little small places that you go into. You think it's a hole in the wall or, or you know, that, that nothing edible is going to come from that particular place. But we had some of the best food in, in the oddest-looking places. Some of the uh, – we were, we were welcomed in some – some ways that we didn't anticipate, and we got to see um, some some beautiful things. The harbor is a beautiful place. Um, 400 years ago, it was filled with with slave ships. Today, there's there are fishermen. Um, there are luxury condos, uh, and it's a beautiful place for people to gather. So people should go and be able to get an appreciation of the history and also what's there now. Because there's plenty of things that Africa has to offer now. Yes, you're right. And, you know, you mentioned, well, perhaps you may want to pick the easy places, but you may also want to reach out to those groups that really do understand what they're doing. When they take individuals into Africa, I know I went with Roots to Glory and went to Cote d'Ivoire. And you're right, you will see a, a range of of cities and villages, and you have an opportunity to interact with people as a, a descendant of that country, of that those people, and it, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. And so, Nichelle, I'm just really happy that you had the experience of going to Angola and going on this journey to find Angela and to write up your experience and to have the, the Tucker uh, family member on that journey with you to find yourself. And so this is what happens, as you said, when you go there, you, you're you know, trying to understand, wait a minute, the slave trade, were they complicit? Yes, some will say we were complicit in the slave trade. But we survived, and we're able now to go back to the motherland. And so it is an experience, as you said, but it's an experience that is worth it. So do you have any closing remarks? 
do you have any closing remarks before we close out today? I, I do. Um, I was just so blessed and so lucky. We, as we look at what's going on around us now with with coronavirus, um, the team members have have all said, you know, we we just had that lightning moment. We had those two weeks in which we got the the permission to go, the money to go to Angola, and it could not have happened at any other time, and could not have happened in any other way. Um, this going going there brought us closer together as colleagues, and in terms of what Angela has to reveal to to the world, um, what we were able to get out of that and share, so many personal stories came came from that. Um, our lead mm-hmm. reporters found her own roots and um, found out that she and Wanda have a closer connection than they would have thought. They acted like sisters and cousins when they were there. And if you read our 1619 project, 1619.usatoday.com, and you will find her story where she talks all about um, her revelations and how going to Angola uh, provoked her to look to get her DNA test done and look into some family records in Virginia uh, to see whether she was, in fact, related to the 20 and odd. And, and I think that will be a very interesting story to follow up on. And I will say about about Angela and just tra- just traveling in her footsteps. I, I did start out thinking it would be a little simpler to do, um, that it would be a character sketch that would be pretty um, basic and grounded in her journey as an enslaved person here. And certainly, I wasn't the first person to write about her and be fascinated by her her story. I wanted to make something that was a little bit deeper than what I had seen in terms of a profile. And mm-hmm. I was very surprised that it that it took me all the way back to Angola. It was as if she wanted me to see, no, that wasn't my story. Um, this is my story. You need to see all of the story. Um, I was emotional during the writing of it. There were several times when I wrote the passage about what happened during Angola where I had to get up and leave my house or do something else um, in order to come back and deal with all the emotions of having seen it. It wasn't until I got back home till and decompressed a little bit that I was able, able to really feel her story. But what I get out of that is how remarkable, how amazing, um, how faded it was that through all of these things that happened to her, uh, Middle Passage and the pirate ships, and she ends up in Virginia by herself six years later. That that she even survived six years later is remarkable because in the colony proper, if you if you survived a year, um, you were doing good. And these were the English colonists that came with supplies and, you know, with connections to England that would be able to get them some help. It was still, you know, a harrowing journey. It was impossible for them to survive. So for her to come bringing all of these survival skills into Jamestown, um, she, her household, the Pierce household, Joanne Pierce was known for her fig preserves. Angela was the one who maintained that fig garden. She was the one who raised the hogs. She was the one that, was integral to helping that household survive and thrive. And for her to still be there six years later after after Indian attacks, after disease, after so many things had happened that had 
um, taken out um, and, and killed many other people there, native or white or African. She's there standing resilient and mm-hmm. and strong and able to get through all of it. So just the, it's just an amazing story. We don't know if she married or had children. We don't know if if she if she died and is buried next to the house um, there in, in Jamestown. Um, but wherever, you know, what whatever happened to her, um, it it happened to a person who stood strong and firm and lone and refused to be brought down by anything. And I just think that's tremendous to study. It is tremendous to study. And so I want to just thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on today to to share with us the story of finding Angela and finding yourself as you went through this journey. So thank you so much. And everyone, please tune in next week for some more exciting shows. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for allowing me to share. Thanks, everybody. Sure.